0: Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and you may have noticed you are seeing a lot of me this morning. Our associate pastor, Marty, is off uh, leading a youth conference in Augusta, Georgia, and so I'm taking up what is in church world called being the liturgist as well, kind of the MC running the service. We don't often let Marty go do things like that because we try to keep it a secret how talented and awesome he is because the more that gets out, the more people try to steal him, but we wanted to let him serve in this opportunity, and we're glad that he's able to do that. So we're continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. You're also welcome to turn there in that pew Bible to page 520. And again, if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one as our gift to you. We also have the children's uh, version is going to be on page 11 as well. And before we get to the text, just kind of remind us of where we've been today. So Ecclesiastes is all about the question of 1-3. What do we gain from all our toil here? We're slogging it out with life under the sun in, in a broken world that just makes everything vanity is the word that we're most familiar with. Emptiness of no worth. Frustrating. And so what the writer here is doing, he has embarked on an experiment Can he find the cure to the frustrations of life in a broken world? Can he maybe get inoculated? Is there a vaccine available against frustration out there? So he earnestly and honestly jumps into alternate ways to live, really exploring, are they better than faith and trust in the God of the Bible? Last week, We saw him jump into yet another one of these worldviews. He jumped into rejecting God, living as if God does not exist, and being honest about what life looks like in that worldview, in a culture that ignores God. And we saw that he was made angry by the wickedness that he saw everywhere, especially where there should be righteousness and justice. He saw wickedness. And then he basically admitted that, you know, if there is no God, there's no difference then between animals and beasts, that people are humans and beasts, that people are just beasts. And as the Brits would say, they treat each other beastly. And so in resignation, coming to that conclusion, he ends chapter three with, well, try to find some joy in this life if you can, because that's all you got. Good luck. And with that frustrating advice ringing in our ears, this pastor philosopher now begins chapter 4 by taking us even deeper into the cruelty and hopelessness of life under the sun. So with that, if you would, let's turn now to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is God's Word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we come wanting to know your truth. And Lord, some texts require us to dig a little deeper for that treasure than others, and so we ask that you would send your Spirit even now, that you would open this text up to us and us to it, that we might know ourselves and see your grace. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' great name, amen. So our our theme for today, where we're going to try to go in this text is this, our envy oppresses and exhausts, but God's grace offers rest. As so we jump right in these first three verses, we see from, he's writing from the depths of woe. He immediately begins by looking at the tyranny, the oppression, which occurs in a world without God. Remember last chapter, he was so frustrated because in both the court system and the religious system, he just saw wickedness. And now he's digging into the results of that particular wickedness. And he says he sees oppression. And notice it breaks his heart twice here. He says, there's no one to comfort the oppressed. It means to press down. It means to extort. And he knows that they cry themselves to sleep at night. And in verses two and three, it leads him to such despair that he says, it's better to not even be born than to be born and to live under the sun and see this kind of pain. Did you know the Bible was that real about this stuff? That in the words of sacred scripture, the writer is saying, this is so bad, it's better not even to be born. He takes seriously the evil and the oppression that's out there. He's looking at power structures that keep people oppressed, what some might call social justice. Now, there's no mandate for him to fix it in this context, so we're not going to go there. There are plenty of other places that do. Don't hear me say the Bible doesn't care about those things. That's not true. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 doesn't care about those things. That's not its point. What he wants us to see here is his response to it. We see his empathy for their pain. He notes their tears. He doubly laments that they have no comforter. He basically is not a good researcher here. He steps out of this antiseptic analysis of life without God, and he weeps at the destruction that the world brings this world that without God has no reason to care for the oppressed, and so it really doesn't, and it breaks his heart. There's a writer who came out with a book a couple years ago. His name's Chris Arnod, and he gave up his Wall Street job. He He was an expressed atheist, and he gave up his Wall Street job because he'd achieved what he would call financial success, and he really wanted to Research and try to find actual solutions for poverty. He looked at all the different charities helping with, um, people in extreme poverty. He noticed they all had like this religious background and baggage. And he was going to try to find a way he could like get rid of all that and actually solve the issue. So he started spending all this time with the poor and interacting with the urban poor. And he, he writes about his experience in a book called Back Row America. And in a, in a newspaper article about this book in The Guardian, he said this about his quest. He said, I saw my atheism for what it is. An intellectual belief most accessible to those who have done well. On the streets, the addicts have come to understand we are all sinners. Many successful people don't. Their sense of entitlement and emotional distance has numbed their understanding. So here he is, he comes in and he he admits he gave up his atheism. He's like, "I, I have no answers unless I bring God into this equation on how I should even care for these people. And I appreciate that intellectual honesty. It's what we see in this text. Our our culture says, and we know it says, and we're glad it says this, people ought not to be oppressed. People ought not to be made to suffer. But, and here's the problem that he gets at in this quote, is that the worldview of evolution, I'm not talking about the scientific aspects of it, but the worldview, the philosophy of life that that has become, can't tell us why oppression should not be. The mechanism of natural selection depends upon death, destruction, and oppression of the weak by the strong. The evolutionary worldview calls that perfectly natural. And so as Solomon is trying to be accurate about a culture without God, not a straw man, not a character, he really is trying to be accurate, it breaks his heart over the material oppression he sees because he sees that that worldview is going to cause that and really doesn't want to solve it. But there's even a more profound oppression going on here. Remember the overall context is from chapter 3 where his final prescription in in hopelessness is kind of go, well, try to find joy and happiness in this life now because that's all you've got. And that's what makes this so gut-wrenching for him. The oppressed in this life don't even have the consolation of joy now. Their life stinks now, and it's going to stink beyond the grave, and it breaks his heart. See, this is a godly man looking upon an ungodly culture. He takes the time to really understand them, and when he does, he is broken for them. Now, oh, dear Christian in the room, I wonder, is this how we feel about our neighbors who do not know Jesus? Our culture gives no hope beyond this life. Our neighbors are slogging it out with the frustrations under the sun every day. They feel helpless and they feel oppressed deep down. See, when we get to texts like this, it's time for us to have a gospel gut check because let's be candid with ourselves. Those of us in church world can often react to a godless culture under the sun by seeing them as adversaries, can't we? And I'm right there with you. I have to repent of that often. But see here, as Solomon understands those who have forsaken God, instead of being threatened by them, he feels deeply their pain at being God-forsaken. See, suffering and oppression are real. A world under the sun oppresses everybody. But the fantastic news of the gospel is that when the world makes us want to cry like this, we can look and see that Jesus Christ came to earth to end suffering, to end oppression by suffering and being oppressed himself unto death. And then in his resurrection, he defeated suffering. He broke the back of oppression. Christianity does not always give you a reason that there's suffering and oppression, but in the gospel, we have profound resources to deal with suffering and oppression because we see that God himself came down to become one of us and let himself be oppressed and suffered. And he shows a way out of it. What does the world under the sun have available? Nothing really is the conclusion Solomon comes to, and that should lead God's people to tears. And so he gets behind this oppression now. He kind of analyzed it in verses 1 through 3. Now in verse 4, he wants to get behind it and see what's really going on here. Look with me at verse 4. He says, "...then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor." See, since chapter 1, this philosopher-pastor has been looking at the issue of why do we work so hard under the sun? Why are people so driven, even in the midst of frustration? Why all the toil? And we finally get the answer. Because our covetous, envious hearts. We twist this nice sense of vocation into rivalry. We make it a quest for dominance. You know, envy is actually the temptation that in the Genesis narrative that the serpent used on Adam and Eve to bring about this cursed world under the sun. He convinces Adam and Eve to be jealous of God, to be envious. God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit. And what's he say? Because when you do, you'll be just like him. He's trying to withhold something from you. See, envy doesn't trust God, God isn't good. He's not generous as he has revealed himself in the Bible. No, envy whispers. He's stingy, unloving, withholding. And it leads us to feel poor little me. Envy creates a deep-seated pride and that envy makes us competitive and covetous to this very day. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. He said this, he said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. See, it's not just that we want something. We want to have more than somebody else. We have to win, we have to be better than, we have to beat somebody. And you know we're wired this way, aren't we? Under the sun, in a culture that says God's not in the equation, something has to be transcendental. There has to be some sort of ideal we strive toward that that tells us when we get there, we're worthy, we're successful, we're valuable. In our culture, since that's prosperity and achievement, that means deep down we either envy people who are closer to that ideal than we are, or we desperately want to be the kind of people who are envied because it makes us feel valuable and safe that's what Solomon's telling us here in verse 4, that envy, coveting, it's the fuel of all our toil. And we see this multiple times every day. We really do. You pull out your smartphone and you pull up envy book. I mean, sorry, instant envy. No, I'll, I'll get it right. Uh, snap envy. That's it, right? Oh, envy talk. There we go. Okay, I'll stop. I, I spent like five minutes coming up with that, so I really wanted to say that. Okay. <laughs> But you know, we, we, what happens is we, we don't put the normal, mundane, boring stuff on there, right? Just use the bathroom. No one cares about that, right? We put the noteworthy, the notable, the, ex, the exclusive, the extraordinary. And so what happens is we see people out at these cool restaurants or on these nice vacations or weird trips. Like, whoa! And before we even consciously think about it, like must be nice to have that much free time. Sure wish I could afford a vacation like that, because that's internal. External, what do we do? Like, right, right? We all do that, I know. But it's not intentional. You realize that, right? Because we only put the neat and the noteworthy, what happens is we get this curated page that's only neat and noteworthy. So our whole life looks like it's only neat and noteworthy, which it's not, We know deep down it's not accurate, but our envious hearts jump all over that, don't they? And we get sad, and it takes away our joy because your life is better than mine. That's why social media makes you actually feel tired and sad after a while. It doesn't energize you and pick you up. Boys and girls here in the room, I really hope you're not yet on social media. That's not my call, but anyway, I hope you're not. But here's how we put this for you. So you can relate. Look, let's look at your verse 4 on page 11. <clears throat> it says this as I finally understand all the work and success, everything we do comes from jealousy of others. Okay, boys and girls, here's what happens. So you can understand what's happening. So a bunch of little people are on the floor playing. And the chaos level is about a three out of ten, which is great. We'll take it, right? We love that one. No, no spikes. All of a sudden, there's a pile of toys over here and a little person walks over and they see a toy over there that no one's playing with and they reach out and as soon as like, that first molecule just makes a connection, someone over here, that's my toy, how's was going to play with that? No, they weren't. But their envious little heart just doesn't want you to have it. And you know you've seen that, haven't you, boys and girls? It's other people, it's a cousin, you never do that, I know. But that's envy. I have no intention of playing with that, but I just don't want you to have it. It's mine. And this pastor who wrote Ecclesiastes is saying that we adults do it too. It's not just that we work really hard to provide for our family. Often we work really hard because we want to beat that person. We want to have more than that person. I want that person to envy my life. And that makes us feel safe, valuable, important, important. That's envy. But just as it did for oppression, thanks be to God that the gospel gives us great resources for dealing with the envy in our hearts. Remember that Satan used envy to tempt Adam into the fall that brought about death in this cursed world under the sun. Genesis tells us in that story that Adam was created in the image, the very likeness of God, but that he wanted more. He wanted to be like God. And so in envy, he grasped out at equality with God. And there's this amazing place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is talking about the Lord Jesus, Philippians 2.6, where he says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus was, Philippians 2.6. There we go. He says, Jesus was in the likeness of God but did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. See, Adam grasped at being God in envy, and as children of Adam, we do too, hoping that we can feel safe, that we can feel valuable. But Jesus, like Adam, like us, was also in the likeness of God. But unlike Adam, he did not grasp at that equality. He was willing to let go. And so that by his death and resurrection, he could set us free by exalting others. And that's our strength for overcoming envy right there. It's not trying to get rid of envy in your life. It's not, well, become a Christian and envy will go away. <laughs> we wish, right? We are envious people by nature, but by the gospel, Jesus changes your nature. He saves you and he begins to cleanse this envy Out of you by grace. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that changes you. And so as we look to Jesus Christ alone, we rest in his grace and his acceptance of us. And by the Holy Spirit, he cleanses that envy out of us because we trust him. But that's the answer with God in the equation. Solomon is looking at a world without that in the equation. So there's another way under the sun to deal with envy, and it's by grasping on with your hands to everything we can in verses five and six. So verse five, weird little verse, if you were paying attention, we read it. Verse five um, it's a proverb. Folded hands shows a person not wanting to work. They basically see this whole system based on envy, and they nope out of it. I don't want any part of that. He uses the word fool here to show that this is a negative presentation. He's sarcastic. He's mocking. Since they don't want to work with their own hands to raise anything, they fold their hands and refuse to work. They eat their own flesh because they have nothing else to eat, is the proverb. So they know they can't keep up with the Joneses, and so they don't even try. And then he says in verse 6, his conclusion, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after win. See, under the sun, the envious person greedily grabs with both hands onto more and more toil so they can get more and more stuff, so they can be better than somebody else, and it doesn't fulfill them. But better, he says, is just a single handful of quietness. do you like that word quietness? I've often wondered as I've studied this, why doesn't he use the word for peace? Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to say to get at peace? But I love how it's what we call in English, it's, it's an onomatopoeia. Remember that word? It means the word sounds like its definition. That's what's kind of going on here. Like how does quietness make you feel? That's what he wants you to grab onto. That this person's work is full of joyous contentment. See, he's talking about the deepest needs of our hearts, that this this ultimate and intimate thirst that we have to feel valuable, we can quiet that down by just trusting and just taking a handful of that. See, in our day, what it looks like is many people grasp onto two hands full of toil by working to pursue a career that pays a lot of money, but does not really fit their talents, their abilities, and their likes. And that career stifles them and it robs them of joy because making money doesn't satisfy your heart. So God's word says, instead of that, it's better just to be content with less, to have quietness and rest in your life. So this is the part where I'm supposed to get really practical and give you the three ways to increase your contentment with well, the five principles for overcoming envy, right? So get ready to work. Here we go, Save. But if you have to work and grasp onto it, that's not contentment. You're doing it wrong. Rather, again, in the gospel, we are offered this fruit of contentment by grace as a result of what Jesus does for us. Our envious hearts will not just let go and choose to be content. It's too hard. We're too weak. But in Jesus, we find resources to make us content. You know, there's this great promise about contentment in the New Testament. And if you've been around church world for longer than about 25 seconds, you've heard someone quote this verse to you because we love to take this verse out of context because we don't actually know it's about contentment, but it is. It's famous. You can probably quote it if I I gave it to you. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We love to claim this promise. Go out and do something Facebook worthy, right? But that's not what it says. Even in Jesus, there's still stuff you can't do. Yeah, I said it. I want to show you the context of this verse. Okay, so let's look at Philippians 4:11 through 13, where it says this. The Apostle Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have strength in all things through him who empowers me a literal translation of that last verse there the rest of its esv i have strength in all things through him who empowers me paul is talking about how hard it was for him to be content but he found the secret it wasn't in trying harder it wasn't in getting more disciplined it wasn't in finally getting serious about his christian life whatever that means it was in resting ever more in the grace of jesus The gospel gave Paul strength to be content in all of that junk. You see, in a cursed world under the sun, in a world that forgets God and lives as if he's really just not there, a world that creates an envious, competitive culture full of oppression and frustration, don't you want to just be content? You think your neighbors could use a big dose of contentment? Those of us who know Jesus, we have the answer what people are striving so hard for is contentment, to be okay, to be at rest, to be able to just, in all the stuff of life, be like, oh, it's going to be okay. Oh, dear flock, rest in the gospel of Jesus and you will have contentment. It's that simple. You'll find joy. You'll find peace. That's the promise of the gospel as shown in Ecclesiastes here. if you're here today and you don't know Jesus like that, all of this is available to you today. Forget everything you think you know about religion. Whatever you think Christianity is, forget about it. And look inside your envious heart and know that right now you could have quietness, peace, and contentment. Jesus offers that to you as a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to clean up your life first. Just simply place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Do it now, and he will give you contentment. And for all of us here, man, if if you have this kind of contentment in your life, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. Tell someone in this frustrating, oppressive world full of toil, maybe you can help them find some quietness too. Let's use the gospel to make our community, a more beautiful place because our envy exhausts and oppresses, but God's grace offers us rest. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for times when your word really challenges us. Lord, we don't want to think about our envious hearts. Deep down, we kind of like them. So, Lord, we ask that you would change our likes, that we might want to have contentment and rest, quietness and joy. And, Lord, we ask that you would show us yet again the beauty of Jesus to bring us all those things. Now, we pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to yourself, even now, Lord, will you do your work of building your kingdom and causing many to confess and believe. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen.